Hey, it's NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Andrew Limbong. Let's talk about memory and all the different feelings it can conjure. In a bit, we're going to talk to a poet who found a bunch of her late parents' old letters and papers and documents you know, while she was cleaning out a storage facility. And it left her with all of these questions, but nobody to ask them to. But first, Stephen Roberts did have people to ask questions to. He's the widower of groundbreaking NPR journalist Koki Roberts. And he wrote a book about her by way of interviewing her friends and colleagues and loved ones. NPR Steve Inskeep spoke with Roberts and their daughter Rebecca while actually visiting Koki's grave in Washington, D.C. And as Koki would have wanted it, it's a lot funnier of an interview than that setup might imply. Here it is. We paid a visit to the grave of Koki Roberts. The longtime NPR journalist died two years ago. She's buried here in Washington, D.C., and we visited with her husband, Steve Roberts, and her daughter, Rebecca Roberts. Where are we? So this is Historic Congressional Cemetery. It's been here since 1802, here on the east side of Capitol Hill. And there's an amazing... Rebecca Roberts is a journalist and, as it happens, an expert on the cemetery that's been a final resting place for many famous Washingtonians, including several members of her family. Steve Roberts has spent much of his time since Cokie's death in 2019 writing a book in her memory. It's called Cokie, and we decided to talk about it at Cokie's grave. Well, remind me, is it over this way? Yes. Why don't you lead the way? Oh, the sun just came out. It's the most perfect fall day. And there's a little sort of cloud overhang. I think you need a little atmosphere in a cemetery. People visit Koki's grave. I was walking here last summer and overheard tourists trying to find her. They leave little stones when they do. I brought a, a stone um, from our garden. I live in the house that Koki grew up in, uh, in Bethesda. There have been six weddings at that house, innumerable celebrations of books and honors and deaths and birthdays and it's been the circle of a wide family for a long time and so um, I thought it would be appropriate to take a stone from that garden and, and leave it on Cokie's tombstone. He gently laid it down. Steve Roberts is a longtime journalist and made use of that skill to remember his wife. For his book he interviewed numerous women Cokie befriended or mentored. When you were writing this did you feel like you were spending extra time with her? Oh of course. I mean, this is the way I grieved. This is the way I mourned. This is the way I embraced her memory. Everybody goes through mourning and grief their own way. We're standing here among thousands of graves, and every single family who's mourned someone in every one of these graves has gone through that journey by themselves, with their families, with their communities, but they choose their way of dealing with grief. What I chose was to embrace it. What I chose was to remember. What I chose was to learn. What I chose was to celebrate. And as I say, I still live in the house we shared for 42 years. Um, still sleep in the same bed. Still eat in the same kitchen. Um, and this is, this is what I chose. And I'm very glad I did because I learned so much, but also it kept me going. He interviewed famous friends like Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes or Democratic Party official Donna Brazile and others less famous who got the same attention from Koki. What was it like to go to those women one after the other and talk well, to them? Well, every single interview ended in tears, um, theirs and mine. 
They spoke of a woman who, before her death at 75, broke several barriers for women, first as an NPR reporter in Congress, then at ABC as one of the earlier women with prominent roles in TV news. Her friends spoke of a woman who showed up for their weddings and also for funerals. Nina Totenberg's first husband died in 1998, and Cokie made the funeral arrangements. The man at the funeral home tried to upsell Nina on a finer casket by saying her husband would feel more comfortable. And she turns to Cokie, and the two of them burst out laughing. And she said, only a very special friend could you share that moment with um, and who would totally understand and totally get what you were going through. As we stood by Cokie's grave, Steve and Rebecca laughed a lot, as you would hope to do when remembering the dead. Though it's dotted with stones of long-dead Washingtonians, John Philip Sousa is in one direction, J. Edgar Hoover is in another, this place is alive. People walk their dogs, one of which bounded into our interview. Hi, puppy. We got a dog tangled in the microphone. Well, here. One of the wonderful things about the National Cemetery is that people are able to become members here to walk their dogs, and this golden retriever has just joined us. <laughs> All right. All right. Do you have anything to say about Cokie? Is it possible your name is Cokie? I think the dog is going to eat that microphone. Oh, look out, look out, puppy. Whoa. It's just not that tasty. The dog ran away after laying down atop the grave of Tommy Boggs, Cokie's brother, who's also buried here. They're both next to a marker in honor of their father. Hale Boggs, a leading member of Congress, vanished in a plane crash in Alaska in 1972. Hale's wife, Lindy Boggs, succeeded him in Congress and turned her attention to this famous cemetery. There was a time when this cemetery was in terrible disrepair. When I was a kid and we'd come to my grandfather's cenotaph, it was kind of kicking the crack files out of the way and bushwhacking your way through the weeds. And it was saved in part through my grandmother's efforts in Congress. Um, there were a lot of other people involved in that too. But this is a beautiful part of the community and a well-used, well-loved place with golden retrievers running through it, uh, in part because... Our family cares. And look, I'm going to be buried right here, right next to her. Me too. We've got those <laughs> plots right over there. Rebecca Roberts says she's been thinking about how her mother encouraged her and other women to succeed. It's not even so much about being more like Cokie, because she was sui generis, but being the person she was pretty confident you were. You know, she would say you were all brilliant and beautiful and decent and good. And so be that person, you know? Be the version of you she was so confident you could be. Cokie Roberts tried to be the best version of herself. She went into the workplace when fewer women did. She raised a family, went to church, and called herself a housewife. She wrote books about important women in American history. Once, Steve Roberts said, she made a special trip to her daughter Rebecca's sixth grade class. And Cokie, uh, for Parents' Day, comes to the school to talk to the kids about what it's like being an NPR radio reporter. And she brings her credentials, and she brings her uh, microphone and her, and her tape recorder, which is about 10 times as big as the one you're using right now. A few days later, Cokie turned up again for the school's Halloween parade. And as Cokie tells the story, Becca says, why are you here? You don't need to be here. And Cokie says, it's your last year doing this. She, I'm going to be here. And then she looks around, and there are all of these sixth-grade girls in blue suits, 
carrying tape recorders. Oh. They dressed up as Cokie for Halloween. One of the stories in a book called Cokie by her husband Steve Roberts about the journalist who served the audience of this program for many years. The topic of shame comes up a lot in this next interview. Poet Victoria Chang wrote this book called Dear Memory, Letters on Writing, Silence, and Grief. It's a mix of poems and letters, mementos and criticism. And in it, she ruminates on memories of not just her own life, but her parents and grandparents, too. And by the time she starts talking about her daughters, you can hear the mood of the interview start to change a bit, and the shame gets left in the past. Here's Chang speaking with NPR's Rachel Martin. The poet Victoria Chang traces her family history through letter writing in her new book, Dear Memory. When she was cleaning out a storage facility, she discovered much of her parents' lives packed in boxes. I found all these papers and letters and birth certificates, and, and then I had a flood of questions sort of came through my body, uh, but I had no one to ask them to. So I decided to write a letter to my mother, and that was sort of the first letter that I had written for the book, and with no intention of sort of writing more. But then, you know, writers do that. We just keep going. And so in Dear Memory, she writes letters to her parents, her grandparents, her daughters, her teachers, interspersed with photographs and documents going back to her parents' journey from China to Taiwan to the U.S. She also writes about dealing with racist microaggressions. And a warning to our listeners, what you're about to hear includes ethnic slurs and offensive language. At one point in the book, I'm going to quote here, you write, dragging a not-yet-ready memory thought or feeling toward language too early feels something like the dog. I can move it, but it will be difficult. Did you come up against that in writing these poems? Of course. I mean, I think the present is kind of a pointed tip and how voracious memory is to grab that present. And I think that dragging a memory up is hard. I mean, memory just sort of arrives when we least expect it, and then it changes and morphs. It's such an interesting thing. Shame shows up a lot in this book, in one poem in particular. This is titled A Letter to Your Daughter. It's on page 118. I wonder if you wouldn't mind reading a section of that. Dear Daughter, What I didn't tell you is that I sat in the front row of the reading, ready to smile and to give a good introduction like a good host. What I didn't tell you is that when the reader had a white character call an Asian-American one a squinty-eyed, feckless I remembered all the times when others took their fingers and pulled their eyes wide into a horizon. All the times people yelled chink to my family or me, the times someone wrote chink on our driveway in chalk. What I didn't tell you is that the reader intimidated me with his confidence, that my mother never taught me how to speak to white people, to loud white people, shake the hands of confident white people, speak in front of white people at a lectern with a white piece of paper with black type on it. It's a really powerful passage. Can you explain the context of it? Sure. I mean, it happens all the time. And um, this was just one instance where I was at a writer's conference and, you know, a white man went up to the podium and was reading a story. And I was in the front row and I was the host. And so it was particularly challenging. I didn't understand why that that even was in the story. So it was hard because I had to go up there and 
thank the reader and clap for him. And right before that event, too, um, another host, and she was a white woman, had come up to me and lectured me for not um, introducing myself to that you know, particular guest who was a friend of hers. And that was really hard because I, you know, apologized and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I've been really busy. And so it kind of felt, you know, a doubly moment of really asking myself, you know, when do I, when do I speak up? When do I stay silent? And most of the time I stay silent, you know. But as we heard in that same passage, you quickly pivot to your parents and, mm-hmm. and it sounds like resentment for not preparing you better to live in a racist world? Well, I mean, they experience these things all the time, and I witnessed them. That's the hard thing as a child, and you don't know how to put words or thoughts to that, is that as a child of of people who, are, who may be immigrants um, or even people who are just different in some way, you don't realize how much you witness your parents who you've sort of elevated in many ways um, as sort of godlike figures, but then to see them being publicly shamed in some ways, many times in your life, is actually a really destabilizing feeling. And then to see most of the silence and how they respond, you know, just ignore it, just move on, because what's the alternative? So now looking back on it, I think it's partly cultural, I imagine, um, maybe some language-based things, but also probably, as now I'm a parent, safety for your own children. It's like, when do you speak up? When do you not speak up? When do you let it go? So this was a letter to your daughters. What what did you want them to take away from this? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough because um, I have, you know, biracial children who, you know, look very Asian. And so I, I'm always constantly thinking about what I could do as a parent to help prepare them for the different things that are going to happen to them. And that's from, you know, misogyny or sexism. And so we talk about those kinds of things. And then the racism that they'll experience or have already. Uh, and how do we how do we navigate through that while maybe not utilizing silence as our main communication tool is something that I've had to really think hard about because I don't necessarily have those skill sets innately because of the way that I was raised. What have you taught them about silence? I think a lot, hopefully. You know, I, I think that I try and be really open and name things, right? So I always talk to them about look, if, if we can't really address anything, we can't really feel better, maybe even, and um, learn from the experience if we don't name it, if we don't talk about it. And so they'd probably say that all the time. Like, you know, let's talk. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's no shame in anything, really. So I find myself maybe reacting to the way that I was raised in changing how I was raised and then raising my own children differently because I think it's mentally healthier to communicate. Have you made peace with the parts of your parents' histories that you won't ever know now? Yes, of course. We we don't have a choice. And so um, I think making peace is, is what we do on a daily basis. Um, but I've also, in writing about these things, I've made peace. I, I think I've made peace with my entire self, my entire upbringing, their history. I used to be ashamed of everything and uh, not like anything and think I was this or there's something wrong with that. Or And now I realize, oh, it's all a gift. Everything, all of our backgrounds, it's all a gift in some ways. And the more we sort of lean into that, the richer our lives will be. The book is called Dear Memory, Letters on Writing, Silence, and Grief. 
Victoria Chang, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write to us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Andrew Limbong. The podcast is produced by Megan Lim and edited by Petra Mayer, Megan Sullivan, and Taylor Burney. The show Elements this week were produced and edited by Emiko Tamagawa, Todd Munt, Rena Advani, Jamila Huxtable, Courtney Dorning, Brianna Scott, Julie Myers, Matt Ozug, Bo Hamby, and Jivika Verma. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>